Good afternoon. Welcome to the latest in our series on, of seminars exploring Aquinas and the education of the whole human person here at Blackfriars Oxford in the Aquinas Institute. I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker, Father Michael Schoen, who is Professor of Moral Theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Father Michael is a well-known and internationally respected Thomist who's published extensively on various aspects of Aquinas's thought. Uh, particularly notable his two books on uh, Aquinas uh, on love and virtue uh, published in 2018 and by knowledge and by love charity and knowledge in the moral theology of St Thomas published in 2005. Father Michael's also part of the advisory board for the Aquinas Institute and together with Father Richard Comrade is one of the great architects of uh, this seminar series which has been so enriching for us. So we're extremely grateful to Father Michael for the work that he does here uh, for the Aquinas Institute and we're delighted to welcome him for this talk on the integrated humanities programs and the renewal of Catholic education, some Thomistic reflections. Father Michael. Well, it's a joy for me to be back at Blackfriars, even if my presence is only virtual. Uh, first question I have is, can everyone see my uh, presentation that has the title of my talk and a little bit of a portion of a Viking uh, ship? Everyone can see that? I can. Okay, very good. Then I will assume everyone else can. So integrated humanities programs and the renewal of Catholic education, some Thomistic reflections. Let us ponder where our true home is and how to reach it. Let us labor to gain entry into the eternal, to find the blessedness of belonging to the Lord joyfully on high. Thanks be to God who loves us, the endless Father, the Prince of glory, forever. Amen. These concluding words of the seafarer, one of the oldest recorded Old English poems preserved in the Exeter book, well expresses surprisingly an aspect of the ideal of a liberal education. The poet, the anonymous poet, at the end of a long life of journeying in the service of his Lord, comes to wisdom and invites the reader to do the same. It's a wisdom that is the result of an education that comes from posing the question, where we come from, where we are going, and how we get there. That's the goal of a liberal education to be able to acquire wisdom by answering those questions, or at least by investigating those questions. Now, in the late 1960s, several events occurred in the United States that led to the founding of programs that have come to be known as integrated humanities programs that sought to give students just this type of liberal education to help them discover through an analysis of nature and of culture, where they come from, where they're going, and how to get there. So in my brief time with you today, I want to look at the history 
of one of those programs, the uh, grandpa grandfather of all of them, the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. I want to then trace, after presenting the history of its founding, trace the salient features of that program, and then consider with you some of the implications of such programs and also ask some questions about possible limitations, possible implications uh, of uh, developing such programs, all in uh, light of the desire to continue the renewal of Catholic education. But right off a question uh, poses, comes to mind almost immediately, Cur uh, Laurenti in Kansia, uh, why uh, Lawrence, Kansas? Uh, why study the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program uh, at the University of Kansas, a large state university? Uh, why turn to that program? Stated in another way, what does Kansas have to do with Jerusalem? Well, the answer, one answer would be multum per omnem modum. Uh, apparently uh, much and in many ways, because it is an extraordinary fact that during its brief nine years of existence, the program had a remarkable effect on its students. Students at that time, 1970, the protests against the Vietnam War, Kent State and the uh, students that were killed by the National Guard, riots. Uh, it is uh, quite a year, 69 and 70. You have the assassination of Martin Luther King in April, the uh, riots in Paris in May. And uh, that's, these are all 68 when the program was just being thought of. And then also that June, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, all of these things are going around in 68, 69, when the program is being thought of uh, to be founded. But then upon its founding, almost immediately, it's having a curious effect throughout the 70s. It started in 70 and ended, was squashed in 79. And during those nine years, more than 200 students, and this is a university that is considered that that part of, of Kansas is considered to be at the edge of the Protestant Bible Belt. And yet it led to more than 200 students becoming Catholics. This is a state university. This is a secular program. Moreover, many fallen away Catholics who were in the program returned to the practice of their faith. Even more remarkably, many vocations to the priesthood and the religious life came out of that program. Many of the alumni went on to become, well, we've got one archbishop, a bishop, an abbot, a prior, a prioress, several uh, major religious superiors, a rector of a seminary, uh, three who have gone on to become novice masters, and even a passel of Benedictine monks who entered the monastery of Our Lady of Fontaine, 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 uh, in France. 
that's an uh, amazing record. And the cream of all of this was in 1999, the founding by alumni of the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program of the Benedictine Monastery in Clear Creek, uh, Oklahoma, as well as the founding of Wyoming Catholic College uh, by alumni, uh, partially founded by alumni and by those who were inspired by the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program. So that is something that any Catholic educator uh, should be drawn to, to simply ask, how did such a thing happen? Was it unique to the time, unique to the professors involved, or were they tapping into something that is perennial? So that's what I wanna consider with you uh, in the time we have. So first, uh, the history. The University of Kansas in the late 60s uh, was confronted by many problems, but one of the big problems that was a concern to administrators was the disaffection of the students. Uh, many students were dropping out uh, during that uh, uh, tumultuous time. And one of the key factors in all of that is the uh, removal of the deferral. Uh, you, if you were a student, you could get a deferral from the draft, but in the late 60s, that was removed and a lottery was put in place. So many of the students became very politically active because they did not want to go to Vietnam and they were now uh, subject to the draft. And amongst this is that many of these students felt that the classes they were taking at the big universities were too far cut off, too far removed from their own day-to-day -day concerns. And the big state universities like uh, the University of Kansas led the freshmen especially to feel uh, that they were anonymous, that their professors didn't know them, that most of the core classes were being taught by graduate students. Uh, and so it was an impersonal anonymous experience that was leading many undergrads not to survive the four-year experience. And so administrators sought creative ways to overcome this. And one of the things that the University of Kansas did was they founded between 66 and 68, uh, five colleges within the college is what they called them. They were uh, sub-colleges and among them was uh, Pearson College. But they found after studying this, that this was not sufficient, that the people in with certain uh, areas of interest uh, still were not finding community together. So they then went on uh, to found sub-college programs, uh, among them, the Pearson Integrated, Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, founded in 70, a program of general education for lower division students, that is first and second year university students. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, as we'll see, um, they, uh, well, well, we'll get to, I don't wanna give too much, go too far forward, but the, um, the program uh, was directed towards beginning students and uh, it lasted uh, until 69. Uh, let me see here, I'm missing one part of it. Oh yeah, so uh, the, the program started out with uh, 20 honor students and it became so popular by word of mouth, by the next year, uh, there were 137 applicants to join the program. Okay, so uh, who were uh, the professors in this program? There were three of them. 
they were all actually educated as professors of English literature, but John Senior, because he was also very skilled in Latin, uh, was uh, quickly snatched up by the classics department to teach in their Latin program. So uh, they had been there for uh, several years, some of them for a long time, like Dennis Quinn at the University of Kansas. Quinn was an extrovert. He was a very, very talented administrator. He spearheaded the program. He was the dean of uh, Pearson College and then became the director of the program. Well known as being uh, well-spoken, a sanguine personality and the perfect administrator for the program. Then there was Frank Nellick who was famously uh, choleric and uh, students who were at the program during those years remember his famous temper. And then John Senior, who was a melancholic poet and also someone who had had a much longer trajectory, a convert to Catholicism, and whose books probably have had the, the greatest influence on those who weren't actually students of the program, but who have read his work and been influenced by the ideas that animated the program. Professors at Kansas couldn't believe that these three professors could work together. They were so different and they had so many different interests. But what united them was the belief that university education needed to instill in its students wonder. And it needed to be a program, a hands-on program, where students could discuss classic texts with their professors. Uh, and they also felt that the move towards specialization that was killing so many great books programs throughout the United States, uh, I can name several where even to become a professor at those programs, it didn't matter where you could, whether you could teach undergraduates or not, but you had to have one, two, three uh, monographs in some specialized area. All three of them felt very strongly that before you can specialize and before you can lead your students to specialization, you must introduce them to general knowledge. Uh, it was a trend, uh, they were not unique. It was a trend that many schools and in many areas, uh, they started to put in freshman programs to get students excited about the science. So to allow them to learn to walk before they could run, allow them to have a general love for biology before you send them into specializations in biology, things like that. So they were part of a, a wave but their, their wave was in the humanities. Uh, a good example of how this functioned, there had been a general program of uh, observation in astronomy, but when that professor retired, it was replaced by a course in astrophysics. And so there was no general introductory class at University of Kansas by mid 1960s that would get students excited about astronomy. So, Dennis Quinn decided that he would have as an integral part of the program, a stargazing class that was the equivalent of what had been uh, the introductory course in astronomy. So what happens? Uh, the program, because it was so successful, uh, started to cause, uh, well, it drew administrative attention. Uh, let's just say that we won't, uh, Many people have uh, attributed it to jealousies on the part of other people in the faculty, uh, College of Arts and Letters. But however that may be, 
fairly quickly, the program that became one of the most popular program at the university drew administrative attention. And the other thing that started to happen was very quickly, the conversions to Catholicism, which was at first a concern, uh, but not a crisis. What began to move the administration into crisis mode was the scandal of vocations. This is 19 in the early 70s and mid 70s, uh, the vocations coming out of the program to the priesthood. And that began to draw public attention in the media. And what really caused the whole thing to explode were uh, when the press got a hold of the fact that they were students from the program that were entering a French Benedictine monastery. And it didn't help that some um, prominent administrators of the university had children who became Catholics through the program and became alienated from their parents. So the program was abolished in 79. Fundamental elements of the program. First, we should look at what the program shared in common with all of the sub-college programs. It was a residential program, and this has become very popular in a lot of schools throughout the country, throughout the United States, to uh, have people who are studying certain areas live in the same dorms, uh, have the same dining hall. And so that was part of the program's experience, like the other uh, programs at the time at the University of Kansas. It also was only for the first two years before students had to go on to specialization to declare a major. Uh, so it was four semesters uh, for freshmen and sophomore. That it shared in common with all of the sub-programs. But the unique features, first of all, the thing that would have struck uh, a new student uh, well, the very first thing that would strike the student is that in order to get into the program, they had to have a personal interview with the three faculty members. And the interviews were a freewheeling discussion and to see uh, how the student would react to the discussion. Uh, and the criteria for letting the student into the program was to see whether they were on fire with these type of life questions. So that was the first in the interview. Then the other was the reading list, which was, we can come back to the whole question of the reading list, but classics. Uh, so you have uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, you have uh, Virgil, you've got uh, classics from Greek and Latin, and then also uh, English literature, Shakespeare, all the way up through uh, uh, a chosen list of American literature. And the Students were expected to read a, a bulk of this, uh, half of the reading list before they uh, even uh, got to uh, the, uh, the first semester. They were supposed to spend the summer starting their reading so that when the course started, uh, they would have a common uh, set of uh, texts that they had already been studying. Now, the backbone of the program was, were the lectures that took place twice a week and they were not like any lectures that the students had experienced before. They were in a, one of the large amphitheaters and there were just the three professors. The students were there, but they were not allowed to speak or ask questions. And the three professors with their very different personalities would begin what seemed to be a completely freewheeling discussion that often drew upon uh, 
recent events, the last weekend, whatever, but would sooner or later during the 80 minutes come around to key notions within the reading, whether it was Plato's Republic, Plato's notion of uh, the different forms of government, sooner or later they would come around to a discussion of those texts. This was twice a week for 80 minutes. The other interesting feature of this is that every lecture before it began, someone among the students, a senior student, so uh, someone in their uh, sophomore year would uh, lead the group in song and the entire student body uh, of the program and the professors would sing this song together. Uh, by the time the students had been through the two years, they had learned a lot of different songs and in English or in Latin uh, of various different traditions, uh, an unexpected feature of the program. Next, there were conversation groups. Now, each student was assigned to a conversation group and they were of the, uh, each group had around 12 students assigned to it. And one professor would be uh, attend that group. Uh, there were 17 such groups. It's amazing how much time the, the three professors uh, dedicated to uh, this aspect of the program. Uh, and they would discuss the text that had been discussed in uh, the general lecture. Another interesting thing about this is they were divided into uh, freshman groups and sophomore groups, but you were not, uh, although you were required to be a member of one group, you could attend as many of these groups as you wanted to. So if you uh, couldn't get enough of it, uh, you could attend the other groups and participate uh, if you behaved yourself uh, in the discussions. Then the only real classroom time other than the discussion groups, which were not always in classrooms, uh, was the rhetoric class. And the rhetoric classes were taught by TAs who were formed by the three professors. And the focus was on orality, that is to help the students discuss the notions that had been uh, presented uh, in the main lecture. They were encouraged to use the tools of rhetoric to help them articulate what they believed and what they wanted to say about the issues being discussed in uh, the, the main lecture. So basically they were trying to help the students learn how to think, learn how to argue. And the, uh, the fascinating thing about it was the way in which it was transversal. That is, you, uh, when you had to do a paper which we then present orally, it had to draw upon some of the written texts that were discussed in the class. Then it had to draw on uh, your own experience. Then it had to draw on some of the poems you had memorized and we'll get to the question of the poems. So it drew on all the different things that you were doing in the program. You had to articulate what you thought about it and then uh, express it. That, so it was very functional use of rhetoric, learning uh, rhetoric, rhetoric to help you express yourself. Uh, now, each week there was poetry memorization, but this was oral memorization. A sophomore who had already learned the poem would recite it, which was also a way to get the poem more deeply in the sophomore's memory. And there would be uh, a small group of freshmen around the sophomore who hearing the poem would try to repeat it. And 
they would repeat it until it was memorized. And there were 40 poems that the, uh, and some of them of, of substantial length that the uh, students in the program over their two years uh, were required to memorize. Uh, so again, orality. Uh, then I had also I'd already mentioned Dr. Quinn would take the students out on these stargazing adventures. They would go outside of Lawrence into the farm lands. And when it was a good night, he would uh, help them identify the stars uh, and then uh, draw them into the mythology associated with the constellations. But it was mainly uh, without any of the light pollution of the farmland outside in rural uh, Kansas uh, to get them to see the wonder of the stars uh, and to be drawn into that. Next, there was uh, a Latin option that was not required. It was voluntary, it, but it, it uh, in, was very popular and engaged uh, the students. And it was an oral method uh, to get them uh, speaking and arguing in Latin uh, very quickly. And they, it was a remarkable program because they were uh, already into the advanced book uh, by the end of their program. So it was successful uh, through the conversational method in getting them uh, to learn the, the fundamentals of Latin. Another feature of the program, which uh, varied every year, was the Latin tour, was the European tour to take them to visit places uh, where uh, uh, the events historical events or the literary uh, settings of the literature they were reading had taken place. Uh, and this is how some of them went on to discover uh, French Benedictine monasticism uh, in the Salem tradition. The other thing that emerged kind of organically from the program was the formal waltz ball where they would learn uh, how to waltz, they would protect, they would uh, practice, and then they would have once a semester, uh, this uh, very popular uh, dress up where they were dressed up in formal attire, and they would do these incredibly difficult Viennese waltzes uh, of an evening, faculty with their spouses and the students. Then the other thing was the equivalent of a rural uh, fair. Uh, I think in England, you call it a fete. Uh, and there would be square dancing and uh, all the different things that you see in rural fairs and drawing upon some of the history of it too that they would uh, have come across in their reading. Uh, competitions, archery, uh, juggling, all these different things that were uh, fun and uh, also baked goods. It was a way for the families of the students to come and experience uh, the communal aspect of uh, the program and was a very popular event locally uh, as long as it lasted. Now, what's going on here? Why was the program so popular? There are some principles that Dr. Quinn in his book, and I can uh, send to uh, the uh, Blackfriars the, a short bibliography of, uh, of the works that kind of explain the program. But both Dr. Quinn and John Sr. articulate very beautifully 
the principles that underlie this method. First, that a liberal education depends upon people finding wonder. Wisdom begins in wonder. It's an Aristotelian insight, but it's an insight confirmed uh, throughout educational history. Uh, and so the motto of the program was nascantur in admiratione, uh, let them be born in wonder, in admiration. And wonder is provoked by contact with nature. Now, one of the programs that was born of the Pearson program is Wyoming Catholic College, an undergraduate uh, university institution in Lander, Wyoming, uh, which I've had the privilege of spending time at. And they've uh, integral to their program is the outdoor uh, uh, adventure air uh, aspect of the program where they learn just as the folks who are going into environmental sciences, there's a very famous leadership program that is also in Lander, uh, just as those folks are learning, so too the Wyoming Catholic College students learn uh, how to survive in uh, the, uh, that region of Wyoming, uh, which is spectacularly beautiful. Uh, and uh, they get in shape, they go to the outdoors, they encounter nature as diverse as uh, rattlesnakes and uh, horses, and it's, uh, there's Indian reservations. There are many things that force them uh, and challenge them physically to experience the natural world in all of its beauty and complexity. And also an integral part of the program, which I love, uh, is their equestrian sciences, learning how to ride and how the, uh, the techne, the craft of riding, uh, just John Sr. was introduced to that as a young man and fell in love with that in Wyoming. Uh, the, the craft of learning how to ride uh, is uh, also a formative part of their education at Wyoming Catholic College. So the, the uh, giving wisdom begins by discovering the wonder of the natural world. Linked to that is their conviction that you have to, before you go into specialization, educate the memory and the imagination. And that's especially through oral and auditory learning, song and poetry and other uh, uh, prose uh, that are memorized. Uh, John Donne has beautiful paragraphs to be memorized that are not strictly poetry, but are to be memorized. And in the American tradition, uh, there are famous speeches, the Gettysburg Address, things like that, that be are poetic in their prose and are part of that oral memorization tradition. Uh, and then if wisdom begins in wonder, it also comes from learning to argue. This is, I think, uh, uh, not uh, emphasized enough about the program, but it was very much at the heart of all three professors' understanding. If you can't say articulately what you think, it's not quite clear whether you know what you think. And so it is in the process of arguing through, well, what, what are Plato's views on the way in which democracy, uh, timocracy becomes democracy and then leads to tyranny? What does he mean by that? And what do I think about Plato's views? Is it right? And of course, in the, in the 70s, 
at that time of uh, turmoil, it was one of the big questions, are we sliding towards this type of tyranny where you had violent groups attacking the government, the weather underground, uh, and then of course the overreaction of the government with the National Guard, all of those things, things that I remember as a kid. My, my mother was a, uh, a graduate student at Berkeley uh, during uh, those years when the National Guard were called out. Uh, and so how to understand, well, I begin to articulate or I begin to learn what I really think. I begin to develop views on these issues by arguing with others. It's another aspect of the oral and auditory learning that is uh, integral to integral humanities programs. We acquire wisdom, we acquire uh, a liberal education by learning to argue out our views in the company of others. And then of course, wisdom comes from uh, knowledge as loved. It's not just book learning, but it's learning these truths in the company of others that we express in song, in dance, and in uh, communal celebrations. Uh, now, from that perspective, uh, I want to back up and offer an interpretation of what's going on in these programs. What exactly, what, first of all, why were they so popular? Was this something unique about students, the baby boomers at that time? Uh, well, perhaps, but perhaps not since it gave birth to uh, high schools uh, and uh, so preparatory schools and uh, universities, uh, undergraduate uh, colleges in the United States that use these same principles. And those schools are doing well, although COVID has been very hard on them. But perhaps there were elements that were unique to that time. But I would like to say, and I'm drawing upon both Dr. Quinn's understanding and especially John Senior's understanding of what was going on and why they were popular, is that these uh, unlike other schools, the integrated humanities programs are actually serving a medicinal and I think the best word is remedial function. That is, they have replaced what used to occur elsewhere. But because of our traumatized uh, culture, it's no longer being uh, provided what traditional local culture once provided, you know, talking uh, the, the young man sitting on the steps of the local grocery store and listening to the stories of the older men, uh, that is happening less and less. So if you think about the older generation, uh, if you think about people like uh, Harry Truman or Dwight D. Eisenhower, or even George Marshall, they grew up hearing stories of people who were veterans of the first world of the, I'm sorry, veterans of the American Civil War. And they talk about how Eisenhower uh, was influenced by General Grant in the way in which he uh, led the allies in uh, Europe. 
Well, but that formation started early and that started in oral traditions uh, when he's uh, in his uh, small town listening to veterans uh, of those earlier uh, national struggles. Uh, that type of transmission of culture is slipping away. Uh, and it's not just gener across generations that the youngsters are not talking to the elders uh, or not listening to the elders. Uh, it's slipping away also in terms of the within the generation, certain types of activities are no longer occurring. And I'll come back to that. Uh, but one of the uh, authors that, uh, that I think uh, articulates this beautifully uh, is um, Larry McMurtry. Now, Larry McMurtry is a Texan and a prolific novelist. Uh, many of his uh, novels and short stories have been made into movies. Uh, the Last Picture Show, uh, Lonesome Dove, uh, and uh, HUD was based on one of his novels. Uh, but he has a, a collection of essays, and the title essay is the one that is of interest to me now, Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen. And he looks at the way in which uh, what used to occur in small towns and what used to occur at the dinner table in families is no longer occurring. The transmission of culture, the transmission of oral culture from one generation to the next uh, is evaporating and he's he expresses what's that going to do uh, to America and her future uh, so in some sense the integrated humanities program are remedial in that they provide that aspect of oral learning that used to occur in local communities and in the family but is occurring less and less now it remediation is possible and uh, one of the things that's most encouraging, it's not just possible for uh, uh, freshmen and sophomores in college, uh, but for others who have uh, missed out on this. And I think the greatest example of that is an underestimated and uh, neglected author, uh, Richard McKenna. Now, Richard McKenna served on the China station in the US Navy, uh, and he famously wrote Sand Pebbles, which uh, David Lean turned into a fabulous movie uh, with Steve McQueen. But the novel is a neglected treasure and it uh, contains much of what I've been trying to say in terms of how you learn uh, through being, what McIntyre would say, being initiated into the life and practices of a community. Uh, uh, Holman on this uh, gunboat on the Yangtze uh, has learned this through the Navy. But McKenna in his essay, New Eyes for Old, The Quest for Education, shows, describes how he himself didn't begin to take education seriously as a, someone who had never finished high school and was a, a career uh, sailor. It began to become vital to him when his life became a question. And he stumbled upon a book uh, by Nietzsche that began to push him to read. Nietzsche posed questions for him that he could not answer on his own and nor could anyone else around him give him a satisfactory answer. And so 
his uh, reading, which up until then had been recreational, became much more vital. And he went on uh, to graduate uh, from University of North Carolina and become uh, go through a whole apprenticeship of writing where he could express his answer uh, to the question, an answer that he drew from the great uh, authors. Uh, and it's a fascinating story, but it's a, it's a hopeful one because what it's saying is remediation is possible as long as you have an environment where the orality uh, of, and the, the education of the, uh, the memory and imagination can occur. Uh, now, the other thing that's part of this, which I think is uh, neglected and often controversial, is the rediscovering animality. You see this as a concern in Dependent Rational Animals by Alistair McIntyre, a book that I think is too often mocked for his apparent obsession with dolphins, but that's not at all the case. What he's trying to show is the extent to which our ability to uh, become uh, independent practical reasoners, our ability to acquire a liberal education uh, depends upon uh, and presupposes uh, learning uh, things and being involved in activities that we share in our own way with the higher animals. And therefore, if we neglect uh, these bodily activities, these communal and bodily activities, uh, we will uh, make education much more difficult for ourselves and not really understand uh, an aspect, a key aspect of what uh, the wisdom that comes from a, uh, a liberal education depends upon. That is knowing where we come from, knowing who we are, and we won't know where we are going and how to get there unless we fully understand uh, that being a rational animal, being a political animal means being a bodily and uh, being involved in bodily activities. So the recovery of dance, the recovery of song, the recovery of celebration, and the recovery of uh, community service are all part of uh, features of the uh, Pearson Integrated Program, Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, and the way in which, uh, although I've showcased the Catholic vocations and conversions that came out of the program, as equally intriguing are the leadership, uh, the, the people who went on to have leadership roles in their uh, communities after graduation, went on to law school, went on to medical school. There are judges, doctors, nurses, uh, uh, people involved in local government uh, that have come out of the program dedicated to the true, the good and the beautiful and, and uh, celebrating that in their own communities. Now, um, all of this has uh, support in uh, recent research. I've spoken on other occasions at Blackfriars about uh, the importance of song and dance. I've drawn upon uh, the, uh, the great uh, Ted Joya, Dana Joya's uh, brother, who's uh, the go-to person for Oxford Press for anything that has to do with jazz, but much less well-known are his three volumes on song. And he has one volume on healing songs, another on work songs, and a third on love songs. And he shows how, in many ways, we in the West have lost our song. People who used to sing together while they worked now listen to music while they work. They don't sing together. And that has implications for uh, who we are, our well-being, uh, and 
uh, whether or not we learn well uh, what it means to flourish as a human being. So recovering our song is an integral part of the integrated humanities programs. And I think it's one that is, uh, would also help understand us understand some of the crises in religious life where communal song, uh, communal chant, communal prayer that is uh, in song uh, was diminished and uh, uh, is in need of recovery. And then the dance. Uh, I think the program stumbled upon something and these programs have tried in their own ways to articulate, but Western dance when it's healthy is a communal uh, celebration of courtship. And uh, the romanticism of courtship uh, depends a lot upon these animal activities. Uh, it is not two angels who go to get married. It is two animals who have a spiritual vocation, who are unique uh, animals, this unique amphibian. Uh, we live in the waters of the corporeal, but we breathe the air of the spiritual. Nonetheless, uh, the sacrament of marriage is corporeal and is in, rooted in the animality uh, that has a dance proper to it. And communal dance traditionally is a traditional way of celebrating courtship. And recovering that, I think, is also part of the role of these integrated humanities programs. Uh, now, uh, I bring to this, however, some questions. One of the questions I have, and I don't have a clear answer, I have the elements of an answer, is the reading list. Now, I could go through it. It's not surprising. It's the Western canon, but it's also the canon of uh, English literature. It's the old Western canon. So it's reading uh, the, the great Greek epics, uh, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, reading uh, Virgil in his various different, uh, you know, the, the Aeneid and, and the other, um, uh, the, the poetry uh, celebrating rural life, Horace, all of these different classical works. They slip in the Confessions of St. Augustine as a classic of Western literature. Uh, there's not a lot of continental literature after the Latin period, however. It then comes over to uh, English literature and selections of American literature. Uh, now, you can make a very strong argument for that in terms of being able to understand where our institutions come from uh, in the Anglo-American uh, world. But what about the need for the same goal, which is to rediscover the real, rediscover the true, the good, and the beautiful in other cultures? Uh, have the insights of these programs uh, application in these other cultures? Could you do, for example, a uh, integrated humanities program based on the uh, ancient Chinese literature, which is abundant? Now, Senior himself, in his own trajectory in life, had a very bad experience with the Buddhist uh, and Hindu traditions and sets up a contrast between the Western canon and uh, the, the world denying features of Hinduism and Buddhism. Even, let's say we grant that criticism. 
I don't think that criticism holds for much, and I would say maybe the majority of classical Chinese literature. And I think it would be very, very interesting. And it's the type of work that Matteo Ricci, uh, Il Madu in Chinese, uh, was engaging in. That there is a need for these type of programs in cultures that are radically and disruptively uh, becoming uh, postmodern. Uh, my time in that wonderful Middle Kingdom has shown to me when I ask questions uh, that there is a great generational divide between those older grandparents who were very idealistic and then their children who uh, were traumatized by the Cultural Revolution and then their children who are now studying. Uh, these three generations don't speak to each other. And so the challenges in the Middle Kingdom and the challenges in uh, other parts of Asia are very similar to what we're undergoing. So could uh, such a program be developed for those countries that do not draw on the Western canon? I don't see any reason as a Catholic evangelist why someone growing up uh, in Shanghai uh, needs necessarily as part of their formation in the true, the good, and the beautiful, uh, to know very much about the founding of Rome or of uh, the, the battles uh, between the Persians and the Greeks. Perhaps I'm wrong, I'm open to being corrected, uh, but many of the arguments in favor of the providential aspects of uh, Western philosophy with the emergence of the uh, proclamation of the good news and the, the incarnation uh, and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ seem to me to be uh, post-Hoke-Propter-Hoke arguments. Uh, they were helpful for what we have. Well, that's because that's what happened. But it's not necessarily uh, clear to me that it was necessary or even best that it happened in that way. In God's providence, that's how it happened. Uh, but uh, the gospel is for all people, and therefore the true, the good, and the beautiful is for all people. And this helps me identify one of the tensions I see in the programs, both at Wyoming Catholic and as it was lived in Kansas, which is there is a universality that is celebrated. The students are being drawn to ask universal human questions and to learn how to engage them. But it's always through particular peculiarities of a certain form of the Western canon, which of course is, that's part of being human, right? We, you, universal questions are asked in particular, but could a different form of that particular be developed? That's one of the questions I think uh, is worthy of greater discussion. And I'd be happy to discuss it with you during the question and answers. Um, so I, I articula articulate this as integrated humanities programs, the Far East and the Wild West, because you could also develop a canon. And John Senior actually had a certain uh, weakness for this, and so do I. Uh, a, a, a canon uh, drawn on uh, American literature that is a bit different than the one that which they drew upon, uh, but which you could also, I think, help people come to know and love the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, and there are forgotten uh, masterpieces, neglected masterpieces. Uh, a few years ago, we saw John Williams's reemergence as a, a master novelist with Stoner and with his book on. Uh, um, 
the um, uh, on Caesar Augustus, uh, his book on Augustus, uh, amazing literature. I've mentioned uh, McKenna and Sam Pebbles. You could also mention True Grit, Charles Portis, all of these uh, books, uh, Donna Tartt, the younger generation, uh, the, um, uh, the, the Catholic, uh, uh, Southern Catholic, Gothic, all of those different uh, canons you could use to help people come to know and love the, 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 the true, the good, and the beautiful. So that's an issue, uh, the reading list. The other is the something that has that is new on the scene vis-a-vis -vis the Pearson program is the emergence of homeschooling. And I think in America it has emerged for very similar reasons, and that is because of the uh, collapse of uh, the school system and the way in which the school system was not responding to the needs that the families perceived. And so uh, they've taken this task upon themselves. And what's often not well enough known in Europe is the way in which this has evolved so that homeschooling is not as individual as it might have seen, it might sound, because these families work together to do together what they can't do on their own. It is building local community and transforming local community. And the most interesting feature of this, and it's something that I haven't explicitly mentioned yet, is the way in which it's affecting diet. So that the families, because the education is now in their hands, are having to be concerned about uh, what the kid's going to eat for lunch. And uh, they begin to question a lot of the processed food and the way in which food is delivered. And that has been, I think for me, one of the biggest surprises is to see that families that get involved in the homeschooling movement it doesn't just improve the education of the child, it changes the life of the entire family and then little by little, the local community. And uh, for some that's very threatening, but for others it's experienced as a liberation. Uh, they feel better because they eat better. Uh, they, uh, and this is challenging for many, I know, but it's been confirmed by my experience with these couples it also uh, caused them to rethink uh, their uh, rejection of the church's teaching with regard to contraception. They, they're changing their diet. They also start changing the way they treat their body and the way they express their love. It is absolutely fascinating to see that. And it's one of the things that uh, if we are serious about drawing on the insights of these integrated humanities programs, we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take it seriously, in which that means, are we willing to change how we live? And I say that for all of us, because it would mean how we use the resources, how we treat the natural world, uh, how we eat. Uh, you can go down the list. Uh, is it really worth all the resources to have strawberries in winter? Uh, if you really add up the consequences for our culture, perhaps it's better to forego strawberries in winter and uh, have a better uh, quality of life. And also, of course, these strawberries are chemically induced. So this is just issues that arise once you start um, uh, having an integrated approach to education. But there's also a tension with the emergence of homeschooling because does that, uh, when homeschooling links up with these integrated programs, there is uh, 
the danger of what I list at the bottom as uh, the Amish option. Is this becoming a closed subculture? Uh, that's a legitimate question to ask. And the uh, way I frame it is, is it uh, the Amish temptation, the Amish option, or is it uh, the parallel polis that the dissidents from Central and Eastern Europe articulated? They did not want to be uh, creating a, a world apart. They wanted to create a world that could be of service to the larger community. Uh, and so it's a parallel polis that eventually uh, would uh, flower into being having a, a much more integrated role in the larger society. That was the goal of Havel. They articulated that expre expressly, uh, and you can find examples of that elsewhere. Um, so that's the other big issue. Um, is it, uh, uh, are we ready to the return to nature uh, and what it would mean in terms of how we live? Uh, and uh, is this a parallel polis that is exclusive? I mean, is this a, uh, the Amish option that makes us into a new form of uh, environmentally friendly uh, uh, ghetto? Or is it something actually at the service of the larger community? And what would we need to do to ensure that it's the uh, latter and not the former. Questions I bring uh, to my reading uh, of these uh, of these experiences and of these programs. Uh, so I thought I would end the way I've begun with something from the Exeter book. Uh, it's not on the, uh, the display here, but I thought it was uh, amazing. One of the poems about the world order or the song of the cosmos, as sometimes it's, it's uh, affirmed. To live therefore a probing and emboldened life, one should fathom the world trove's buried ends, should scribe into mind the word hoard's might and skill, make thought a strong march and meditate steadfastly, so the noble servant will never grow way-worn, tolling in wisdom through each earthly arrival. School yourself in these sciences, now let me sing of the given's glory that like wind through the sedge outstrips your art, though the heart grasps it by staying steady. Is your soul's heft stout enough? It is not with human scales in constant scud of dust that one weighs the portion his wit strains to grasp of the, of the most high work the code of God's design. For we shall thank the chief of all, unbounded, from always back to nil, so the everlasting king may astonish with radiance, shearing off all want, so that, knuckled down, we may scale the high walls, choosing as handholds the heavenly king's word. Thank you.